This is episode 101 of the Beyond the Food Show, and today our guest is me. I am my own guest on my own podcast for a very good reason. I'm sharing an interview that I did with my friend Sean Croxton about my own journey, and I'm going to share with you really personal and intimate part of my journey that I've never shared anywhere else. My name is Stephanie Dodier. I'm a clinical nutritionist, and at 35, I was trapped with severe anxiety, panic attack, obesity, and my health completely collapsed. I needed solutions, and my journey began. Each episode of the Beyond the Food Show, we bring you an expert or a message to help you achieve your goals, unlock your self-confidence, and live a better life. This episode of the Beyond the Food Show is brought to you by the Going the Beyond the Food Project, an online health conference that is focused on teaching you to ditch the diet mindset, transform your relationship to food, and feel good for good. This is my baby. I handpicked 21 health experts that think and live outside the diet and weight loss dogma box and will help you transform your life with radical new way of looking at health and weight loss and help you heal your distorted relationship to food. You can register for free at the going to beyond the food project.com or use the link in the show notes at stephaniedozie.com slash 101. If you are within the free viewing period, which means you're listening before November 7, 2017, you can go register. Everything is free. If you're listening to this podcast post November 7, you can still have access to all the recording and the audio by purchasing the upgraded package and all the details are on the website. Today's episode, we're talking to me. Yep, me. But I brought forward a friend of mine, Sean Croxon from the quote of the day show or underground wellness radio to interview me because I wanted to bring another side of my story forward that I had never done before. You see, when I decided to become someone that would help you in your health journey, I decided to go back to school, become a clinical nutritionist. I made a conscious choice to be an open book. However, I've always controlled what was going out to the world because I was in the deciding seat. I was the one curating the information going out. I had not yet given up that control to someone else. And when I created the Going to Beyond the Food project, I wanted to share more. I was ready to release more of my own story. I have done the personal work that allowed me to share even more, but I knew that I wouldn't achieve that doing it by myself. And that's what I brought Sean forward to share more about my own story. You see, for me, sharing my own story has always been a difficult task. It's been a task that brings up a lot of fear, a lot of fear of judgment, and a lot of shame. And that's why the talk name is called From Shame to Fame, because there's a lot of shame around it. Because when, when we are perfectionists, and it's not necessarily a good thing to be perfectionist, but when we are, we want to portray this perfect image to the world. And we protect that dearly because we think that if we're not perfect, 
we are not good enough and we will be judged and we will not be accepted by the rest of the world. So for me to share my story to that level was extremely nerve wracking for me. Like the day before this interview, I had a lot of anxiety. I was shaking. I was very nervous. But I know that when I get to that point, it's because something big is about to happen. I know that moving outside of my comfort zone is actually something that's very scary. So I went down that path of sharing this part of my journey, scared to death, not to use another word, very anxious, very nervous, but I trusted the person who did this interview with me. And that's very important when you work to move outside of your comfort zone, you got to trust the people you're working with. And I have that with Sean. So I was able to go there, but be aware that it wasn't easy. It was very scary. But when you want to grow, when you want to step out of your comfort zone so you can become a better version of yourself, you want to change things into your life, it will be scary. And actually, I'll go as far as saying if it's not scary and if it's not nerve wracking, you're probably not challenging yourself enough. And I know with this one, I challenge myself enough. But I did it for me to release that to the world so I can help you more. So, are you ready to listen? Let's do this. Stephanie Doty, welcome to your own Going Beyond the Food Summit. How's it going? It's doing very good. Like I said earlier, I'm a bit scared of what's going to happen in the next 45 minutes, but I'm on for this. Nothing bad is going to happen, and I'm going to be shocked if we only go 45 minutes, because you know me, my interview is an hour and a half, but we'll try to keep it to 45 and hold everybody's attention. But you know me, I'm the story guy. I love to get into people's story. And I've interviewed you know, a good handful of people about like food issues, overeating, undereating, eating disorders, things of that sort. And I know that for a lot of people, their issues around food can go all the way back to childhood. Was that the case for you as well? Totally. Like when I started to learn about what you talked about, which is the relationship to food beyond calories and macro, my first memory is me making cookies at the age of 11 at home, hiding from my mother because I didn't want her to know that I had cookies after school. Why didn't you want her to know? Because at that point, I was already starting to gain weight. And my mom, somehow, somewhere, I don't have exact memory of her telling me this, but she started to embed me with the word calorie, fat is not good, you need to restrain what you eat. So I remember making those cookies after school before she got home and eating them all with my brother so she wouldn't see me. Did your mom have a weight issue at all? or? No, my mom was actually pretty stable, but my family in general want to please. So we're a family of pleaser. So if society wants you to look a certain way, my mom looked that way because she didn't want it to be out of norm. So one thing to know for the listener and for you, my dad is actually a police officer. So we were raised in that world of respecting the law, not being out of alignment, being the same as everybody else around us and standing out was actually something that you wouldn't want to do, that you shouldn't do. And if you did, 
you were shame. Mm-hmm. So in that world, when I started to gain weight at the age of 11, I stood out. Not only was I taller than everyone else, like literally a head taller than everyone else, but I was bigger. And that, to me as a child, at the beginning, I didn't feel good or bad about it. It was just who I was. But the more that I received feedback, either from my parents or from my environment, even from friends at school, because children can be very hurtful in their comments without meaning it, the more that I started to feel shameful about myself. So what you're saying is that from a very early age, a very young, impressionable age, you were taught to almost be in fear of food. You eat too much. If you have too many calories, then you're going to gain too much weight. You're going to stand out. People aren't going to respect you and you have to hide it. Yes, you have to. Yeah. And so you're making cookies, hiding cookies from your mother. That's not a good way to, I mean, I'm not saying you had a bad childhood by any means, but that's just not a fun way to grow up. I think that as a child, you want to have fun and have cookies and it be okay. You know what I mean? I imagine that was pretty tough on you. It was. And I remember crying a lot on my own because of the shame that I was receiving around the weight and because I had to hide how I was eating. And the more that I hide it, the more that I wanted to do it. So it became like a vicious cycle. Exactly. That's it. It's almost like, you know, when we're told that we shouldn't do something as kids and even as adults, it actually makes us want to do it more. We become obsessed with it. Absolutely. And that's a pattern that actually, it's funny you should say that because that's a pattern that continued even throughout my teenage year. Like the more I was told not to drink, guess what I was doing? Drinking. The more you drink. The more I was told not to smoke, I started smoking. Mm-hmm. Right? The weed and all that stuff. The more I was told not to, I had this desire to just do it. And it was like bigger than me because I wanted to rebel. That was that relationship to food very young brought up into me is that need for rebellion, that need for standing out, but on my own term with my own control. So your mom instilled this fear in you of food, but there was also pressure on the dad side of things as well, right? Absolutely. So one of the things in my family that was very important was how people saw and perceived us but also how we perform in life. So one of the things that very early on from the age of five or six, we were put in is competitive sport. My parents did not force to say which sport we have to do, but we had to pick one. And we had to be very diligent in the practice of it to the point where it became work. So for me, I chose swimming because I always loved water. And I was in competitive swimming, so by the age of 9 or 10, I was swimming six, seven days a week, sometimes twice a day, which reflecting back is a lot. I would be at the pool in the morning, would be at the pool after school because I was in that competitive environment and because I had to perform. So sport, which in my view today should be a form of pleasure and a form of enjoyment for a child became work because I had to perform because my dad wanted me to win gold medals and nothing was ever good enough except number one spot. But why, why do you think that was? From his own upbringing. So only now do I know that because of my own self 
journey and my personal growth and the work that I've done, I've looked back and that's how he was brought up. He was brought up in this environment where scarcity. So in Quebec, in the French Canadian culture in the 40s and 50s, there was a huge family of 10 or 12 and literally they didn't have enough to eat. So they were in that environment where they had to earn money and to be the best at what they did so they could earn money. So my dad was brought up like this and he, knowingly that was the way to be raising children, unconsciously repeated the same thing with us because he believed that it was the best thing to do. Did you hold a lot of resentment towards your father for that? Number one. And number two, as an adult, have you gotten to the point where you say, you know what, that's how my dad was raised. That's really all he knew. Did you ever stop pointing the finger and stop blaming? And Absolutely. So at the age of 38 years old, that resentment and that anger against my dad from the age of 14 to the age of 38 was very intense. Was it mostly about the competitive sports or was there other stuff as well? It became general. It became about how he was and how he led his life because I built a lot of resentment against the sport and against how he pushed me to perform in that way. And I resented it because honestly, I wasn't as good as he wanted me to be. So therefore, I wasn't pleasing him and nothing that I ever did was good enough. So that embedded me this belief that I wasn't good enough. So that led me to years of resentment and a lot of rebellion against my dad to the age of 38 when I had my breakdown, I ended up in therapy. Mm, yeah, we'll get to that in a yeah. second. Do, do you feel like that there's a, you know, I always say there's a bad side of things and there's a good side of things as well. Do you feel like some good came out of it? Because I know you, you're in my mastermind. Like you push yourself, you don't mess around. Do you think if you weren't raised with that upbringing, that, that competitive driven upbringing, that you would still be the same person who you are? Because you've really gotten out of the mold. I mean, look how you were raised. You were raised not to stand out and you're online now. I know. You, know, you have a podcast, your face is out there and people know you. And so do you find that looking back, there were good parts of it as well? Everything was good. I am at that point in my journey after five years of spiritual awareness and personal growth that this is the best thing that could ever happen to me. I would not be where I am today would I have not had this upbringing. My skill set that I use today to help others is because of that. And I think that mindset change against my upbringing is actually what liberated me and what allows me to do what I do today. Love it. I want to go back to, you know, high school, maybe. Yep. I think you said there was a lot of bullying going on. Yeah. So 11, 12, started to eat cookie, gain a lot of weight, ended up in what we call junior high here in Canada. And I was bigger. I was at that point five, eight taller than all the guys and all the girls in my school, heavier. And I was bullied on every single day. And it's, this is the what first time. Oh, big fat cow, lesbian, like anything you could imagine, the words that are the most painful. And I had those beautiful curly hair. My mom had given me a perm. So not only was I like standing out physically, I was standing out with my hair. So it was like, about my weight, about my height, all the most vicious words you can ever imagine. I was called that on, going into class, coming out to class. Nobody wanted to pair with me in school. So I was rejected, mm -hmm. which 
Today, one of my biggest fear is rejection. Still, huh? Still to this day. And that's what I was telling you before we started the interview. I'm afraid. I'm not afraid because of you. I'm afraid as, as I share this story, would my community reject me? No, your story is going to get people to connect with you more. I know. They're going to see themselves inside of your story. You're running a tape in your head. The you ego mind. And you're creating a story around it. And all of us do it. But yes. you're going to be okay. So I have to imagine that, you know, getting that kind of bullying at school. And then at the same time, feeling uncomfortable at home, you really couldn't find a way to escape it. No. And what I did is I internalized everything. I ate more. I hid my food even more. And I became alone. Like I literally had no friends, did not have a good environment at home. I didn't practice any sports anymore because I'm going to share another piece of information here. But I have a scoliosis in my back. And what I know today, when I look back, I wasn't born with the scoliosis and the pain in my left hip. I believe that I created that as a way of escaping the competitive sports. Like literally, I created the curve in my spine and the pain as a way out of sports. Huh. Crazy, it's right? So, that's wild. It's so funny the things that we do, we create for ourselves in order to escape things, you know, in our lives. Totally, because I've been looking into this pain in my hip and my back for years. And I went to a chiropractor five years ago. I literally sat on the table. He touched me and he looked at me, said, you created this because you were afraid. Right, the right. men had no idea. And I look back, I'm like, totally. Like, that was my way out of the pressure from sports. Yeah, there's definitely some truth to that. Did anybody at any time, you know, ever just take you aside and just say, hey, Stephanie, what's going on? Yeah. You know, who was that? My aunts. So at the age of 14, I went into a diet. So I did an attempt to Weight Watcher at 12. My mom literally dropped me off at Weight Watcher alone. And obviously it didn't work because at that age, what can you do? What is that like? Oh, terrifying. To drop you off at Weight Watchers by yourself. It was. Because I got to imagine when you go into the room, you go into a room of grown women. Grown women, you have no reference points. I was scared and I was so terrorized that I would just, I remember not talking and looking at the lady who was weighing me and not saying a word. And I wouldn't lose weight and I would go in the next week and she would look at me and like, literally shame me and I remember crying like literally crying because I had no clue what to do with this information I had no clue how to satisfy her because all I wanted was to have her pat me in the back and say you're okay you're good and I would fail at it every single time so I would like literally ball my eyes out every single time did you tell your mom about being shamed and if so what did she say I couldn't bring myself to say that because that would be a disappointment to her because I wasn't losing weight. Does that make sense? Yeah, I got you. Yeah. And my mom wasn't shaming me because here's the thing. Back in those days, Weight Watcher, you had a little scorecard. Mm -hmm. And every week you would have the weight you lost in it. So I would get back in the car after the one-hour meeting. And imagine that 12-year-old in the middle of like 50-year-old women talking about weight loss. I had nothing to say. Couldn't understand half of what they were saying. And I would come out to the car, my little scorecard. My mom would look at it and she wouldn't say anything. Like she wasn't shaming me, but she would only see that I wasn't losing weight. But I could see it in her face that she wasn't happy, but she wouldn't say anything. But just the look yeah. was strong enough for me to feel shame. So we wouldn't mm -hmm. talk about it. Yeah, you knew that she was disappointed. 
Totally. You knew that it reinforces that feeling of I'm not good enough. See, I can't even do this. Exactly. Huh. Interesting. So at some point, you lost weight. Yeah. So at 14 with my aunts. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot. Yeah. Tell, tell me about your aunts. So my aunts on the side of my father, they're all big women. And so every two years, they go on a cycle of losing weight. Then they gain the weight. Then they lose weight. They still do that to this day. So they took me with them at that new low-fat place where it was easy to lose weight. And we went there, six of us together, and they encouraged me. And they made me feel like I was part of something and I was doing well. But guess what happened? I lost 50 pounds in six months. Simply, now looking back, I thought it was because of the diet. But looking back, it wasn't because of the diet. It was because of the feeling that I had of belonging. Yeah, you started to feel better. You got out of that cycle of negative emotions, like feeling bad about yourself all the time and being all alone all the time. And everybody's making fun of you and your mother's disappointed and your father's disappointed. Now you actually have a support group in a real community that you didn't have before. And the weight just melted away. Mm -hmm. Because you probably felt like you no longer had to feel or feed the feelings. Exactly. And I felt like I was satisfying them. Mm -hmm. I felt good about myself. I felt like I belong. I felt like people love me. So I didn't need the food to any longer hide this emotion and numb the emotion of shame that I have because I felt good. Do you think that's what happens with most people who gain weight? It's just feeling they just feeling bad about themselves and they feed their feelings or is it something different? In today's environment, I think there's multiple prong. I think there is a definite issue with people who eat processed food that can cause them to gain weight. Absolutely admit to that. But we overeat those processed food too for a reason because there is people who eat processed food and don't gain weight. And there is other people like me who overeat that food and gain weight. So I think, yes, it can be physical, but I think in today's society, 90% of the people who are overweight is because at some point in time, they overate or tried to numb their emotion with food. Right. When you lost the weight, did you notice that your mother and your father and people started to treat you differently? Totally. So here's what happened. So now I'm in 30 years of high school. Well, the first year of high school, I lost all this weight. I look good. I started to have friends. For the first time in my life, I had a group of kids with whom I could hang out with outside of school, that we could talk together. And I became, quote unquote, a normal teenager. And I had a group of kids and we went to the movie and I had a normal life. Go ahead. At the same time, though, like you have this normal life and the kids are liking you now. Is there a part of you that says, wait, 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 what? I was the same person before. Did it it feel like it was fake and it was conditional? And if you gained the weight back, then they wouldn't like you anymore? Did any of that cross your mind? Absolutely none, because I wasn't aware of all of this at that point in my life. Two, I was so happy that I didn't even question anything. And they were good kids. Like, I still have a friend with some of those people today. But here's another thing. In the point of view of satisfaction, looking back, back in those days, I was a new kids on the block fan. That was in the mid-90s. But in my desire to please people and my friend who were all, the girls were all new kids on the block fan, I went to the extreme. I literally covered every single inches of my wall in my bedroom with new kids on the block poster. (laughs) From roof to every single wall. I asked my father as my birthday gift to go to Boston in hope of seeing new kids on the block. 
like crazy, crazy stuff like this. But I did that because I wanted to be loved by my group of friends who love you kids on the block. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I went to the extreme, uh-huh. which yeah. is a pattern that followed me my whole life. And I'm sure we'll get into that. But that was the beginning of this extreme thing. Well, what about your, your mother and father? Did they treat you different? They let me be who I was at that point because I finally had friends because they knew that something was wrong with me, but because they weren't expressive in their emotion, they weren't conscious of what they were doing. They didn't know how to help me. And when I started to have friends, they were so happy that I had friends that they let me do what I wanted and they encouraged me to be with my friend. Mm -hmm. I have to imagine you were a good student, right? Yeah, always top A student because of that. A, because of the desire to please, and then B, because it was just easy for me. Uh-huh. I know when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time by myself. Mm-hmm. And as an adult, like one of the reasons I've been able to be quote unquote successful is because I know how to sit my butt down all by myself and do the work, right? Did that happen with you at all? Like you just didn't feel like you had a problem being alone because you had been alone for so long? Yes and no. I had no problem being alone but I couldn't be quiet. I couldn't be alone and do nothing because my thoughts were so negative and so constant that I escaped the loneliness by working. Mm, Gotcha. And overworking because every time I was alone, didn't want to be alone. So I worked all the time. Uh Uh-huh. Anybody ever try to send you to therapy at all as a kid? I know I got sent to the therapist several times. Like mom was like, maybe there's something wrong with you. (laughs) (laughs) You know what she wanted to do? My mom wasn't aware of therapy because that was a bad thing. And we lived in a small town that everybody would have known. Actually wanted to send me to private college with nuns. Oh, really? Yeah. And I remember like I was in sixth grade and the college would start in seventh grade. And I remember being on her bed and my mom was explaining to me where I would go the next year with a private college and being away from her. All I could think about in my head, that's it. I am so bad. I'm so not good enough that now they're sending me away. Yeah, they don't want you. Oh, my. Did I ever cry? And I still can remember the pain in my chest of the rejection. And I would just bawled so much. And I cried so much. And my mom ended up saying, like, we can't send her. Mm. And I didn't go because of that. That was her attempt of therapy. was Mm, private college with nuns. Gotcha. I have to imagine that at some point the weight came back. Yeah, it did. Actually, from the age of 16 to the age of 26, my weight was stable because I had friends. I was like living a normal quote unquote life. So I didn't, I remember not having an issue with food. Like I would eat and non issue. Like I didn't eat well by no mean, but I had no issue. And then at 26, I got into a relationship which was going so well that we were engaged to be married. And I was working at that point with Hudson's Bay Company, which is a retail organization that has location throughout Canada. And I had just finished my internship program and I was ready to get a store, like to be a store manager, the next level of graduation of that program. And they shipped me to a city that is like the furthest northern point of Canada called Prince Rupert, like literally an hour away from Alaska. And that night I came back home and I shared that with my fiance and his reaction was very negative. He didn't want to move there. Then all of a sudden his issue of following a woman instead of me following him became a huge issue. Right, right. 
So a week later, which is two days prior to us moving up there, which he had agreed to, I came home and he literally was gone. He had packed up his luggage, like two suitcases, and he literally left me and I never heard from him again. Is that the rejection thing kicking in? Oh my God. Like how, how much did it kick in for you? Curled on the floor, bawling and thinking the world is about to end. Like literally, I couldn't see past the next day. I was completely destroyed. Like that was the ultimate rejection, like another confirmation that even my relationship to men, I could never have one. I went to that place where I'll never be with anyone because I'm not good enough. I'm not worth it. And then what I did to medicate those pain feeling is starting to eat again, but I got into a work addiction. Well, I want to go back a little bit. You were engaged. Did people know you were engaged? Yes. And did you have to deal with the shame of telling everybody that you're not engaged anymore? Absolutely. And then the good and the bad part of this is I was engaged to be married, but I was so far away from my family, which is a whole, like I literally went from Montreal to Vancouver, which is the other end of the country, as a mean of running away from my family, that I had that shame of the family was so distant from me that it was the least of my issue because I didn't have to face them physically. I didn't have to face all my family. The biggest element that shamed me was me looking at myself in the mirror and the disgust that I had for myself of not being normal. Mm -hmm. And then those feelings come back. And the way that you know to cope with those feelings is to eat food and now it's to work. Exactly. And here's the thing. When we are in those places of shame and guilt or any type of negative emotion, we go to what we know, right? It's a subconscious mind thing, right? If you're not aware of what you're doing, you're reliving the pattern that you know how to make yourself feel better. And for me, the way that I knew to feel better was to eat food. And now I have discovered that I'm really good at what I do in business. And if I spend twice as much time as everybody else doing that, I'm going to climb the corporate ladder that much faster and I'm going to be recognized and I'm going to be feeling good. I'm going to finally have another group of people who's going to prove me and make me feel better. So now I jumped into work like no one else's business. Mm-hmm. To feel good. a sense of significance. Yeah. So to get love and connection. Yes. So. And to not listen to my negative thoughts when I'm at home alone. Like when you said like sitting my butt. I could not bear one minute of being with myself. So if I was at home, the TV was always on so I could never be with my thoughts. And I literally went to bed and I woke up, put the TV back on, went to work, came back at night, put the TV on, went to sleep. Hmm. What did the food side of this look like? Like paint us a picture of the food side. So it would be literally wake up in the morning. I would have a giant coffee with a ton of sugar and a ton of cream. And then I would get through the drive-thru at McDonald's, get the trio of food, and then didn't eat the whole day because I work, 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 work. And then I would get at home or before that, I would finish work, drive through the grocery store, and then buy a bag of chip, a pizza, extra cheese to put on the pizza. And then I would drive home and eat an entire big size pizza, a bag of chip, during the course of the evening to the point where my stomach felt so distended that I was in physical pain. Mm. So you couldn't stop. I couldn't stop because 
that was the only way that I could numb the pain in my heart was to feel pain in my body. And I would do that every single night. So you had food addiction. Yeah, if you want to call it food addiction, yeah. I was addicted to the release of endorphin that the food would give me, which would numb out the pain of the rejection. As a grown-up at this time, did you ever say to yourself, maybe I have food addiction? No. Maybe I should get some help for this. Why don't you think that ever crossed your mind? Because you had to be aware of food addiction, or did you just not care? I didn't care. I didn't care about myself as a human being. All I wanted is to have a professional image that would be satisfying enough to the standard of whom I was working for so I could be promoted, so I could climb the ladder to be recognized good at one thing that I did in my life. Mm -hmm. You did that. I did that. So here's a crazy story. I got into Vancouver at the age of 22, and at that point, I didn't speak English. Like, yes, no, and thank you. I got into a retail store to apply for a job so I could rent an apartment and just live by. And I was interviewed by a gentleman who actually spoke French. So he interviewed me in French. I got a job. And the next day I showed up at work and they put me on a cash register in the public. I'm like, I thought I was going to get a job in the back. No, 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 no. She put me on a cash register and all I could do was to nod to people, yeah, 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 and scan their item. And I remember being scared of having to pick up the phone and talk to anyone because I didn't know how to say a word. What, what kept you from quitting? Because your average person would get put in that position and go, okay, this isn't for me. I'm done. I quit. What kept you from quitting? I had no money. So it was literally survival because I had like 200 bucks in my pocket and I needed money to live because there was no way I was going to ask money to my parents. And I was literally backpacking across the country. So I just went for it because I know there would be money at the end and I could eat and I could rent an apartment with that. Otherwise, I would be in the street. How high did you ascend the corporate ladder? So from cashier part-time, I went, by the time I turned 35, I was vice president of all retail operation. Oh, wow. For a company that I had under me 4,500 employees. So you put in the work. I moved up the ladder. You worked your tail off. You ate your tail off. I know anybody who does that. I'm all about hard work, you mm-hmm. know, but I'm also about rest. I have a good feeling for when I'm starting to burn out and I'm like, okay, let's call a little time out. Let's meditate. Let's do some yoga. Let's maybe go on a trip. Let's do something, right? I know that people at some point they break. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of those unavoidable things when you continue to do that to yourself. So at what point did you break? So I just got promoted at a vice president, which was my crowning jewel, because I was the first woman to ever reach that level in a company of men. I was, was the youngest. Nice, I'm sorry, just real quick. Was there a really nice salary that came along with that as well? Oh, absolutely. Like double, like six digit, quarter million dollars a year. Right. Car, really, like the whole thing. You were good. And you were saying you were the youngest? Youngest executive to be promoted at that rank. I was the first female to ever get there. I was the first French Canadian to ever get there. So I was breaking all the glass ceiling that could ever be. And I was proud of that. Like I was proud of having achieved that, but I didn't realize that I was achieving that to the expense of my own life and my health outside of work. So I just reached that level, just got promoted, but here's the truth. I was living the imposter syndrome. 
Like I so had a core belief that I wasn't good enough. I remember sitting behind my desk and like, when are they going to find out that who I am is not good enough for this role? How much anxiety do you deal with when you feel that way? Like literally I was shaking all day long. Someday I'm going to be found out. Someday they're going to show up in this office and they're going to figure out they made the biggest mistake of their life. So I'm going to try to cover it up as much as I can by be perfect in every single angle of my business. And for that, I now realize how painful it was to be somebody who worked for me because I expected from people perfection that I wanted to deliver as a mean of not being discovered. Mm. Like this is profound shit, right? People did not enjoy working for me because of that, because I would not allow one slip up and I would freak right out. I would fire people if they weren't doing the right thing. All of that because I was afraid of being discovered. In that corporate atmosphere, was there ever a time where somebody, you know, as we talked about before, took you aside and said, hey, is everything okay? No. And I think some people attempted to do that in human resource department, but they were stopped by my boss at the time because I was performing so good for the company and I made so much money for them that HR was not allowed to pull me aside and do anything to me and stop me in any way because I was a money-making machine for them. Mm -hmm. So when do you break? When does this thing fall apart? So six months after being promoted in that new role, I got up on stage to talk to my employees, which in itself was in distress. It was me getting up on stage and I literally collapsed on stage, literally behind the podium, collapsed. And I, at that point, couldn't breathe. My heart was racing out like I could literally feel my ribcage shaking. I couldn't breathe. I thought I have a heart attack. And the people around me thought the same thing because at that point, I'm like 300 plus pounds. I smoke a pack a day. Everybody knows that I eat like shit. I didn't exercise. I don't do anything but work. So everybody thinks I'm having a heart attack. So I get shipped to the hospital in ambulance, get put on all kinds of testing mechanism. The hospital thought I had a heart attack. Six hours later, they came back and said, no, your heart is healthy. And we don't know how, but your heart is healthy. You're having a panic attack. And Sean, I went in complete denial. I remember laying on the bed and he's telling me a panic attack and I just want to slap the shit out of him. I'm like, no, tell me that I'm having a heart attack. I am stronger than this because people who have panic attack are just weak to me. I'm like, this is an insult. Like literally this is an insult to me. Tell me I have a heart attack. Like I want a second opinion. I literally asked for a second opinion. Uh And you probably didn't want your employees to know that you had an anxiety attack, right? Bingo. Never. So I put it in hiding. I explained to everybody that I had like myalgia, which is like a mild form of heart attack. And I went back to work. So you lied. I lied to cover myself so I couldn't get found out. Remember this whole fear of being found out, right? So I went back to work. The next Monday, instead of being on stage for the weekly meeting, I was actually in a conference call. So I'm sitting behind my desk. I have all my employees and the rest of the company on the call. And it's my turn to talk. I press the mute button, and at that same time, the panic attack starts again. As I press the mute button, I can't breathe. I start to feel my heart racing. So I'm alone in my office. It's my turn to talk. I'm in silence. Literally, I can't speak, and I'm having a panic attack. That's when my boss found out because I couldn't hide it, right? So he said, well, just take a week off, and that'll be it. So I 
went to the doctor and I said, like, I'm having panic attack. What can I do? And the doctor, the medical doctor, to do what he was trained, he gave me a prescription for anti-anxiety and anti-depression medication. So I remember this very clearly. It's very vivid in my mind. I'm leaving the office and I have the prescription in my hand. And I'm walking down the hallway and I'm looking at the prescription. And I'm like, if I start this, I'll never stop. And this is what I call in my, when I talk to people, I say my Yoda moment. This is literally a Yoda moment. I'm looking at this and there's something that comes out of me that says like, don't take this. Don't ask me how and why this happened. I'm like, I can't take this. If I start this, I'll never stop. So I took the prescription, crumbled it, threw it in the garbage. I'm like, okay, I'm going to find out another solution because we're not doing medication. And I was scared to not be able to continue to work and lose my identity because literally all I had in this world was my job. But at the same time, I had this force inside of me that said, medication is not the solution. There has to be something else. Three days later, I end up in an office of an hypnotist. So I'm sitting in this chair and this girl is telling me, I'm going to fix everything for you. I'm going to go in your subconscious mind, which is, I have no idea what she's talking to me. And the poor girl is trying to hypnotize me. Never was able to do it, which is not a surprise. Your brain's too fired up. You're super analytical. It's hard to bring your brain waves down to where you can be hypnotized when you're in that state. Yeah. Now I know. Back then I had no idea. I'm like, I come out of this office and I went there three times in the week trying to get there. And I'm like, there you go again. I can't even be hypnotized. Did you have that? I remember I had the only panic attack that I ever had in my life mm-hmm. was in a gym as a personal trainer. And after I had that panic attack, I almost didn't want to leave the house anymore. I didn't want to go to the gym for a little while. I had that agoraphobia where I was afraid that I was going to be on the gym floor one day and just all of a sudden have a panic attack. Did you go through that at all? Like, I'm going to go to work today and I might have another panic attack in front of people. Totally. And I actually, one of the things we did as vice president, we would visit store and have to be in front of employees and store manager. I literally found all the excuse in the world to not go out to stores for like three weeks until I found a solution to this panic attack thing that prevented me to do my job. But at some point, because I wasn't finding a solution, my fear of losing my job became greater than the fear of having a panic attack. It's always what's greater, right? My fear of losing my identity, because you have to understand, like, literally, if I lose my job, I have nothing. I have no friends, no partner. I may have a lot of money, cars, and house, but I have nothing human in my life other than my job. So you're a walking ego. I am my car, I am my house, I am my job. Exactly. So the fear of losing that was greater than the fear of having a panic attack, because if I didn't go back to work, I was going to lose my job. So I remember not going in full panic attack, but being in full anxiety mode, but going to the bathroom every hour to like sit down and do some breathing that that nice little hypnotist taught me to calm my anxiety and then go out for another hour and then go back to the bathroom. And I did that for two weeks in a row to manage my anxiety so I can continue to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you change before we get to the solutions? I want to get yeah. to the solutions in just a minute beyond hypnotherapy, but 
when you were going through this, because you did have a team of people working underneath you, did you change as a manager at all? Did you say, to you, no, not at all, huh? You never said to yourself, I've got women who work under me. I'm setting a bad example. None of that. Nope. Why do you think that was? Why do you think that was? I wasn't conscious of the pain that I was imposing to people around me because my fear was greater of being found out and not good enough than me realizing how much pain I was causing to people under me. It's not until later when I changed and I got through the solution that I realized what I was doing and then I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. But that came later. That came like a year and a half later. It was total unconscious. Like I wasn't conscious of anything but the gold medal of being promoted. Do you ever wish you can go back and say, hey guys, I feel like I've been a really bad example to you guys. I've achieved a lot, but this shouldn't be the way that you get here. I wish that I would be able to go back and do it now. And even if you had asked me this question two years ago, mm -hmm. I would have said, I wish, but I can't. Now I wish, and I'm doing it right now as I interact with some of those people on various social media. I interact with them from a place of who I am today and from a place of heart and from a place of forgive me for what I did. Right. How but, inspired are they when they talk to you now or connect with you? Are they really blown away? Like, oh my God, I can't believe this is you. <laughs> Some of those people are my biggest follower on social media. And I've worked with a lot of them one-on-one and they're like my biggest fans and biggest follower. And they're going to be clients for life because they know how deep the change has been. So they're totally inspired because they say she can do it. Like she was the Nazi before. If she can change her life like this, like I can do this shit. Like, let's <laughs> tell me what to do. I can do this. Right. I love it. I love it. Let's get to solutions. So you did hypnotherapy. It didn't work for you. Tell us what happened next. Oh, I did everything. I did massage therapy, went to a chiropractor. And then one day I looked at myself in the mirror. I said, well, I guess if I lose some weight, that can hurt. Cannot hurt it. So let's figure out how we can lose weight here. Maybe that's the solution to your anxiety and panic attack. So I did what I had done my whole life. I went to a place where they sold the idea of losing weight, which at the time was a gym. Walked into a gym, talked to the girl at the front desk. She says, well, the best way to do that for you if you want to lose weight fast is to hire a personal trainer who's also a health coach, and he's going to like take you through this step by step. So I hired this older trainer who was 33, 34 years old at the time, and he had training and nutrition and therapy like physical therapy and training so i hired him saw him like four or five times a week and he put me on the paleo diet changed the way that i ate started to pinch me he was a biosignature from poliquin poliquin Poly thank you Poly yeah, yeah. and then he was doing some training with paul checks so he started to pinch me and sent me to yoga and do all the right thing like this is how you realize the universe is trying to help you because it puts the right people in your life. And that was the right person for me because I could have ended up with totally the wrong trainer who would like put me on a calorie counting, low fat stuff. And like he did all the right thing, like bless the universe, like he was the right person. And then this, the weight started to fell off and the anxiety went away. That's great. It's a law like, of attraction. Exactly. So I did not have a panic attack ever again from the moment I signed the contract with them to commit to a year of change. Never had a panic attack. And within a month, 
The anxiety was gone. I had quit smoking and lost 15 pounds in a month. So I continued, obviously, because it was working. So I continued with them and lost like 100 pounds in a matter of a year. And did it without counting calories, which like blew my mind. I did it while eating fat, which was like, what the half is going on? And my brain that is smart and inquisitive, that's how I got to where I was in the corporate world. Because for people who don't know, like I have no business training whatsoever. I have a health degree. I have no business training. And I managed to get to that level because I ask questions all the time. Like nobody can say, just do this. I'm like, okay, I'll do this. But why? Why are you doing it? Right? So this, you had somebody with you who can tell you why you were doing it. Bingo. And the guy at some point, after three or four months, he sat me down and said, do you ever shut up? <laughs> I'm like, well, am I, do I talk too much? He says, you ask questions like nobody's business. And he bought me two books for Christmas. It was four months into the package. He literally gave me two books. One was The Paleo Solution, and the other one was Move Something from Paul Check. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the answer. So I started reading, and I started to become like, there's something there. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is against everything that I've done my whole life. This is not talked about in the paper. This is not talked about anywhere. This shit works. Like, what is going on? <laughs> So I just started to like, I read those, those two books at Christmas and I started like Googling and like learning and learning and learning and learning. And I'm like, people got to know about this. Like, this is crazy. So I became this militant person who still had the corporate job. But every yeah. time I would interact with family and friend, I'm like, you got to eat eggs. Like, it's not true that you can only have one <laughs> egg a week. And right. You turned into that person. OK, when you turn into that person, it can go real bad, though. It went like bad. Your parents, yeah, your parents don't listen to you. Everybody thinks you're crazy. Yeah, okay. So it went bad. Totally went bad. Like, <laughs> I literally annoyed everybody in my life. Like, <laughs> parents, aunts, uncle. But here's the thing. I was losing weight, and I look better. So people are like, there has to be something there because it's working for her. But, man, she's annoying. Like, I was mm-hmm. the person who would bring at the Christmas party in my family, I would bring my lunch. Like, not eat my grandmother's food. Like, Holy crap. That like insulted her like to no hand. But I was so dramatic about my knowledge of like this thing I discovered that I I could care less about her feeling. I'm like, I got to eat well. Like I cannot never, ever, ever eat this food again. Yeah, I know how it is. I have been there. I was there for a long time. And that's why I took my message online because I wanted to tell somebody who actually wanted to listen to it. You know, I used to just lecture my mom about stuff all the time. But you know what? She didn't want to hear it from me. I turned on a video one day of a 60-year-old man saying the same thing I was saying. And she went into her room. She disappeared for a minute and came back with a notebook and started writing. I'm like, this is the same stuff I've been telling you. It's so funny how that whole thing works. So you haven't quit your job yet. Are people noticing that you're losing weight at work? And are they asking what you're doing and all that stuff? Well, which is the whole thing, right? When you start losing weight, for those of you who've lost weight before, you're starting to get recognized for the weight that you lost and you look so beautiful and you look so good. So now, instead of people not commenting on my appearance, they're over the board and I'm loving this. Like it's positive. I walk into a room, people look at me, people recognize how hard that I work. So I'm loving this whole thing. So yes, people are noticing, but what's happening is that I'm starting to change inside. Like my mindset is starting to change. 
because I'm getting this recognition from the outside and I'm starting to feel more confidence about myself, I'm not putting as much importance in my work. Like I stop working 12 hours a day. I'm now down to 10 hours a day. I don't work weekends anymore because I've got a social network and I'm doing stuff on the weekend and I'm working out at night. No more meeting at night. Like my secretary is like, well, we can't schedule a meeting at night. No, I'm going to the gym. At five o'clock, I'm done going home. I'm going to the gym and I'm doing my food for tomorrow. Like no more of this stuff. So people are noticing that I changed, but I'm starting to change my leadership, which resulted in my team being completely lost because they've responded to me a certain way for 10 years and I'm starting to be nice. And then my team is not performing as much as it used to. But another big moment in my life, as this is starting to happen and I'm starting to get pushed back from my boss as to why I'm not the go-getter that I was before, the company gets sold. The universe does everything in a sequential manner to get you to where you need to be. And the company gets sold and then we get a package. So I'm, yes, but I'm done with money that I can use to do something else. I'm not sitting and saying, oh my God, I'm going to put this all in the bank and like have money. What can I do with this? Did you need another goal? I need another goal, but I'm at that point in my process and I'm like, maybe there's something else in life than work. Maybe life is about more than work. Maybe I can still earn money and live my life financially, but actually enjoy my life. Like this whole thing is starting to happen in my head. And at the same time, the company is quitting and I've signed on to stay for six months. And then somebody puts a book in my hand called The Anatomy of the Spirit by Carolyn Miss. Have you ever interviewed her? The book's right there, though. It's so funny. I was thinking about that book today. When Did I you? It's so funny that you're, you're mentioning it right now. So, yeah, it's not weird. It's meant to be. And anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so I read this book and I'm having a mind blown. Like as much as I was mind blown about the food thing, I'm like, this explain everything else in my life. And then I go into start deep diving in this whole other world of spirituality that explain like my relationship to my dad and the reason why I eat and the pain that I have in my body. And so I end up after six months of staying with the company while we were organizing the buyout, I end up leaving first because I'm so changed. I don't lead my people in the same way that gave them result that they're literally okay. Like the first one to go is Stephanie because she's not good anymore. So I end up leaving with this package and I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know I cannot go back to the corporate world because I cannot do this anymore. I don't know how to lead people without being mean to them. I don't know who I am, but I know I don't want to be this anymore, but I don't know how to be different and lead people. So I literally took six months off and traveled. And then through that, I continued to like found the whole anatomy of the spirit, Carolyn Miss and Louise Hay started to come into me. I went to therapy processed the situation with my dad, came out of this. I'm like, okay, I no longer have resentment and anger. I actually feel lighter. I have to tell somebody about this. Like I have to share this with the world because I'm looking around me. People don't know anything about food. They don't know anything about how their mind-body connection work. And I decided to go back to school. Started looking for a school that would encompass everything that I knew to this point, found a school and went back to school at the age of 37. Where'd you go to school? 
Institute of Holistic Nutrition in Toronto. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so you go there and you learn, you learn about food, you learn about nutrition, you learn the things that you need to know so you can pass them on to other people. Was there a point there where you gained weight again? It came about three years later. Okay. All right. So I was able to keep my weight and the way that I did that was by over-exercising. So I, what I know now to be over-exercising, which is five to six days a week, I would do like I was into bodybuilding at that point. It's not that I was on a treadmill two hours a day, but I was literally at the gym five, six times a day. I was doing yoga every day. So I was literally working out twice a day. Extremes. That's my life. My name is called Extreme, right? So yoga in the morning, bodybuilding in the afternoon. So I could overeat and it wouldn't show up on the scale. But I don't realize that it's about two and a half years ago, three years ago, when I discovered after the Louise Hay and the anatomy of the spirit, I got into the whole emotional eating. I want to go back just a little bit because yeah. you're the food evangelist. You're the organic mm -hmm. evangelist to your friends and your family. You're eating real food, but are you overeating real food? Absolutely. Really? Uh, yeah, I would overeat real food in moments where I would feel afraid, in moments where I would feel stress. Example, so I would travel by myself alone as a woman. So there's certain moment of the travel, which would be scary. And instead of living the experience of being scared for what it was, I would overeat. I would go and have a 14 ounce steak. I would go and have healthy cookies or gluten-free croissant, right? Which is not hurting me physically as far as my health is concerned, but it's, I'm not hungry when I eat those food. I'm trying to numb an emotion, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But again, it was all hidden because I would over-exercise. What was the emotion that you were trying to... Anything, anything that wasn't easy and comfortable. So when I wasn't feeling that things were easy or comfortable, if it was, for an example, I had an exam at school. I was stressed because I needed to perform at school. I wanted to get the highest grade in school. Then I would eat the night before while studying because I would feel this anxiousness of this nervous feeling of you're not good enough. Like you're the oldest in school and like you haven't studied, you haven't memorized things. So you're not going to do good. I would end up getting good grades, but I would be nervous about getting there. The journey, the experience of the journey was very difficult for me. I didn't know gotcha. that it was normal to feel like that. So going into the gym five, six times a day, working out a ton, doing yoga, all of that stuff. When I was a practitioner, I worked with a lot of women who did certain workout routines. And at some point, a lot of them actually looked really good figure models. But mm -hmm. at some point, the body broke. Mm -hmm. When did you break this time? So between the age of 40 and 41 years old, when I realized that the learn, but when I realized that I was overexercising because I was trying to become a yoga teacher and my body was not bendable, like literally not bendable. So I started to work with a physical therapist who looked at everything that I was doing is like, you're like overdoing things like your body needs to learn to be stable, to be able to be bendable so you can really be stronger. So it got me into this whole world of doing more corrective work instead of strength work for those who know what it is 
And when you do corrective work, it's not demanding physically. It's good for your body, but it's not, you're not burning calories for say. So I, he forced me into half the schedule as far as the workout, cut off the yoga, got me into a more therapeutic style of yoga. So I ended up starting to work out less. So the result of that was me starting to gain weight. And I felt ashamed. Here we go again. We're back to the place of not good enough because now I am not able to sustain this weight loss. And I'm the person who's the evangelist and everybody's like, you're the one who said we're supposed to eat this way and you lost weight, but now you've gained it all back. So it must not work. And I have a clinic at that point and I'm seeing patient. People are coming to me to lose weight. And here I am. I'm gaining weight. feel like a fraud. Here we go again. Imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm starting to feel like the imposter again. And in the left side of my brain, I'm like, well, I went back to work out. I quit working with him, went back to work out because that was the only way I knew how to not gain weight. I would do it for three to six months. Then I would stop again because I knew that wasn't the answer. And I would go back to mind body stuff. And then I would go. Back. I did that for two years. Until like, I'm like, okay, we got to deal with this. We got to learn why you're eating. Like you're eating all the right food, but you're just eating too much. And in times where you're not hungry, why are you doing this? And that's when I really started to deep dive into the world of emotional eating. And that's about two years ago when, so when you're having an emotional relationship to food and you're binging, The only way for you to think to control that is by applying more control to your food, right? And at that point, two years ago, that's when the ketogenic diet in the world of people who knew the paleo diet, like the hardcore people, the ketogenic diet started to build. Very underground at that point, but for all of us who were in the paleo world, this new thing called keto was introduced. And what happened is that keto is even more restrictive than paleo. So for me, that became the answer to my binging cycle. Because if I apply more restriction, for sure, this is going to work for me. So I started to learn and to study the ketogenic diet. And I started to introduce that in my own life. And as a practitioner, when things work for you, which they did for me, short term, but they did, I started to work with patient and work with my follower online and starting to teach the ketogenic diet to people because I thought that was the great thing and it worked for me and I lost weight and life was good. But what happened with me now, I was on the ketogenic diet for almost a year. I started to have worse binging episode than I've ever had in my life. Because you're too restricted. Because the restriction is that the worst level that there is, right? Not only Gluten is not bad. It's bad for you. And non-organic food is bad for you. you got to eat grass-fed. Everything's bad for you wow. these days. Every single, it's almost like you should be on the no-food diet these days because you can't eat anything. I can rant about this all day, but I'm not. Well, that is what I'm now realizing. Like, I'm like, holy shit. Like, literally, there's nothing left in life. The joy of life are literally gone. There is nothing left for me to enjoy in my food. and Anytime that I step out of that zone, the guilt associated with it is absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. And when you feel guilt, you feel shame. My way of coping with that was to eat. And it got so bad 
that I would binge on things that I would have never binge on before. Like I would have never go out and binge on gluten food before, but now I would want, just wanted croissant. Like that's all I wanted and I would binge on it. Mm-hmm. I would binge on like French fries because white potatoes is not a good thing in the keto world. And I would start binging, but I would do that in secret because I had a following that followed me because of the ketogenic diet. Well, did you think to yourself, maybe the people who are following me on the ketogenic diet are dealing with the same thing? I knew. When I start to work with those people that are coming for the ketogenic diet, as I start to work with them, they had the exact same pattern as me. Their upbringing, although it may not have been exactly like my story, was something similar. And they had, every one of them had this not good enough buried feeling that I had never shared with anyone. And then they use food as a means of controlling that and getting recognized in the world. And then they would do like me, they would start binging on food. And out of my own experience, I'm like, I cannot continue to do this. I cannot continue to do it for myself. I cannot continue to teach it to people because the people that are coming to me for solution don't need that. Like that's actually making their journey worse. So it had to feel feel out of alignment for you. And I, because I became more conscious while this is all happening, my personal growth is continuing, right? I'm starting to do Vipassana meditation and I'm studying the Zen way of living. I'm like, I cannot do this. Like in the past, I could have lied and cheat my way through this, but I can't do this anymore. And so I've just written a book on the ketogenic diet. And that's when I got into your mastermind. Like I literally just put out the book, got into your mastermind and I'm like, I can't do this. And that's part of the reason why I was struggling when I went to work with you in January. You're like, you have to be the keto girl. But in the back of my head, I'm like, I can't do this. This is not the way to help the world. Like it may help certain people, but the kind of people I want to help and the kind of people that I am meant to serve, because for me in this part of my life, it's about serving, right? And everything that has happened to me up to this point in my life was to prepare me to serve people, right? It was exercise of growth. Like I don't see anything that has happened to me in the past as a mean of punishment that God punished me. For me, it's a mean of having learned a lesson that I can then share with other people. Yeah, it all happens for a reason. Exactly. Quick disclaimer for the audience. When I said you have to be the keto girl, I didn't know you were going through all this stuff. (laughs) I know. I thought it was like, I thought it was working and all that. So I just want to make sure everybody knows that. (laughs) Yeah. But okay. So no keto. You did paleo. You switched to something else. You overexercised. What works? What's the solution? What's the deal? The solution is to discover your intention behind your food. Why are you eating? Right? So it's the diet of discovering your intention behind what you put in your mouth. So when you're about to put something in your mouth, ask yourself, why am I eating? People that we consider normal eater, like people that don't have this emotional relationship to food, will simply answer, I'm hungry. I eat. People like me who have an emotional relationship to food will say, well, I don't even feel hunger. I just eat because I'm stressed, because I'm sad, because of this, 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 this. So the intention of you putting the food in the mouth is not about nourishment. It's about 
numbing or controlling an emotion you don't want to feel. Does food always have to be about nourishment, though? I like chocolate. Not as much as I used to. I used to, I used to binge on chocolate all the time. Somehow I just kind of outgrew that. don't know what it is. Maybe it's meditation. I haven't really thought about that before. But anyway, like, it is. if somebody asked me now, like, why do you eat chocolate? Like, that you're not nourishing yourself. There's so much sugar in there. It's just because I like chocolate. Is that okay? That is totally okay because okay. food on this planet was put for us to nourish. But it was also put for us... Food is the closest relationship with our environment that we've ever had. Like we literally take the environment and put it in our body. Yes, in part, it is emotional, but in, and I hate to say the word healthy, but in a good relationship to food, you will eat in an environment of other people. You will eat in a place where you just want to feel better, but it's not because you're so low. It's not because you're so depressed. It's, simply because you want to feel that little high, you want to taste the food, and then you move on. People that have an emotional relationship to food will eat that food because they're so low, trying to bring themselves up to here. And then your subconscious mind, your spirit know why you're eating, right? It knows that you're eating to feel better, and it will perpetuate that cycle because you're not doing anything else in your life to make you feel better. You're not going beyond the food. You're only staying in the realm of food to make yourself feel better. So you talked about meditation, right? So I know you're practicing transcendental meditation. And it's probably what took you off of your quote-unquote addiction to chocolate because you're starting to manage your emotion, your mind, in a completely different manner than with food. Does that make sense to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I have elevated my consciousness so much over the last year. It's ridiculous. And I mean, when you're just binging on food, you're not really changing your consciousness. You're keeping it at the same point. As the Einstein quote, you can't solve a problem at the same consciousness at which you created it. And so that's what's going on. I was just in a loop, in a loop, in a loop. But now, you know, it reminds me, like, I've been studying a lot of studying a lot of Joe Dispenza's work, Dr. Yes. Joe Dispenza. And, you know, one of the steps to breaking the habit of being yourself is to become conscious of the unconscious. Yes. And so you have all these unconscious behaviors and these unconscious associations. And, you know, you feel a little down and then you think food and then you're feeding the emotions. You have these negative emotions, the negative emotions feed your thoughts and your thoughts say, oh, we're feeling bad. Let's just make some more bad thoughts and then we'll have more bad emotions. And it's literally happening on a cellular level. And what we're doing is with food, we're trying to interrupt that thinking it's going to make us feel better. But what Dr. Dispenza says is, wait, become less unconscious by becoming conscious of the stuff that you're doing, you've been doing unconsciously. But for me personally, the one thing that has annoyed the hell out of me is driving on the freeway in San Diego. But now I'm just like, okay, when I feel it coming, I go, oh, that's that pattern. That's that pattern that's been ingrained in my brain for so long by being cut off and swerved into by people who are texting and me reacting. So now I'm going to be conscious of it. Now, when I see it starting to bubble up, I'm going to say, no, bubble down. Let's chill. Don't let it ruin your day. Let's keep rolling. So is that kind of what you're talking about? That's exactly. So being conscious of your intention behind food and then looking at the emotion for what it is. And then layer that with time and work of understanding why you're having those patterns. So I know you and me, what I've talked about, we've done a lot of work to understand our stories. I now know from 
two and a half years, three years of personal growth that my relationship to food was as 11 and it was emotional, blah, 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 blah. But I wasn't conscious of that till I hit like 39 years old. And because I wasn't conscious of that, I would eat and not knowing what I would eat for. So placing an intention behind food and understanding why it goes in your mouth is one thing. And when you discover that it's about emotion, our work is also to understand why we're feeling this emotion. Why am I feeling anxiety when I'm on the highway? I'm sure there's a reason for that, why you're feeling this way. And then learning another way to cope with that emotion other than food. Right. And when you learn a better way to cope with that emotion, you're less attracted to the processed foods. And there you don't even really have a need for them anymore because there's no emotion to suppress or to numb out. Ha ha ha. I want to say something (laughs) else to this. You have less shitty emotion to. Like there is days when I'm like, I see people around me, they're all excited about like the news on TV and this. I'm like flatline. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have super high. I don't have super low because I just don't react anymore. Mm-hmm. And when you don't react anymore, then there's less reason why you need to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people who have super highs typically have super lows and they go. Hand in hand. There's very little in between. And so Give our audience or our viewers some practical steps. Tell us like maybe meditation that we can do maybe five minutes or whatever. Maybe give them a couple of books that they can read, including yours and all that fun stuff. Absolutely. So there is what I call the Crave Cure formula. So it's a 10 minute exercise into which you practice when you have emotional eating. So I always say to people, First thing you do is you, why are you putting the food in your mouth? When you realize that it's emotional, step away. All I'm asking is for five to 10 minutes of you being away from the food, go in your bedroom, go in your office, bathroom, go away from the kids, like lock the door of the bathroom, sit on the toilet and literally close your eyes and practice nostril breathing. So there's a very good reason why we breathe in and out by the nose And I want you to do that because it literally shifts your nervous system for fight or flight to rest and digest. And when we crave, when we emotionally eat, our system is engaged in survival mode. So we first need to shift from fight or flight to rest and digest. And that will happen typically within the first two to three minutes of you closing in your eyes and breathing in and out by the nose. And then I'm going to want you to feel the breath once you're calmer. I want you to literally move your attention from the top of your head and scan your entire body, literally from head to toe. And what will happen is you will start feeling area of tension in your body, typically shoulder or lower back. There will be area of tension in your body. And that tension is literally emotion stuck in your body. So if you're running away from fear, if you're running away from anger, Those are the emotion that leads you to food. They're actually stuck inside of your body. By bringing awareness, bringing your breath to those different parts of your body and releasing the tension in your body, physical tension, you are releasing the emotional reason why you want to eat. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that, I started doing yoga about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you the first month of doing yoga, I was angry all of the time. I was just losing it. All the time. It was crazy because like my body was literally releasing emotions that were trapped inside. Like I've always been really tight, could never touch my toes. Like I was just tight all the time. And so I totally understand what you're saying by releasing those emotions. You feel so much better. 
Yes, and that tension that you had that preventing you from touching your toe was likely somewhere in your back chain of your muscle, which is a lot of anger. For me, it was my lower back. That's why I had a scoliosis. There is still to this day a lot of tension in my body. Mm-hmm. But that breathing, which is, you studied transcendental meditation. I studied Vipassana, and the principle of Vipassana is to actually scan your body and like feel those area of tension and releasing the tension. Mm-hmm. So through the Crave Cure formula, that's what I want you to do. When you get out of that 10 minutes, I'm telling people, put it on your phone, 10 minutes on your phone, because people get freaked out to be alone with their thoughts. So don't be with your thoughts, scan your body, feel the body, release the tension in your body. After 10 minutes, if you're still hungry and you still want that piece of chocolate, go and have it. Don't deny it to yourself, but know that you're having it from an emotional perspective. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Eight out of 10 times, you no longer want the chocolate. You'll get out of the bathroom and go back to being with the kids or whoever triggered you to want to eat in a much more calm, peaceful place. And no longer will you want food because all your body wanted was your attention for that negative emotion that was stuck in your body. Right, right. You mentioned anatomy of the spirit. You mentioned Louise Hay's work. You Can Heal Your Life, I want to say, is their most famous book. Yep. You got a couple more books to recommend before I let you go? This is my Bible. Okay. Zen and the Art of Happiness oh, is a book cool. by Chris Prantis, and I call it my Bible. Every one of my clients has to read that because it's the 10 most important principle of the Zen teaching, which basically teaches you that everything happens in life for a reason and everything is for the best intent of you. So it's your guiding principle of life, and that little book will change your life. So Heal Your Life, Louise Hay, Anatomy of the Spirit, and Zen and the Heart of Happiness. Three books and Very mine, good. The nice. Crave Cure Program. <laughs> What's it called? Give it to us one more time. The Crave Cure Program. The Crave Cure Program. Stephanie, this has been a blast. I feel like I know you so much better now. I feel like your community knows you so much better now. It's been a pleasure to be part of your summit. Is there anything else that you, we didn't cover that you want to talk about? No, that's good. I just want to invite the people that are listening right now, if you want to take the next step, there is the comment right below the screen here where you can actually talk to me. So there's the Facebook comment. Please share with me how this interview made you feel. Share any question that you may have. And every single night I'll do a Facebook Live. And we will talk about your question, answer your question, or simply have a conversation based on the thought you've left in common. So I would really appreciate if you could interact with me and we'll have a good Facebook Live at night. Love it. I knew we weren't going to go 45 minutes. I know. It's been an hour and 20. (laughs) Was it as bad as you thought it was going to be? No, it's actually very releasing. Very good. Stephanie, thanks so much. Viewers, thanks for watching. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed it. And I truly hope from the bottom of my heart, it will serve you. And the big takeaway from this interview is about changing our perspective on our own journey. If I had kept a mentality of victim, a mentality of shame, I would have never moved forward. I would have never grown as an individual and I would not be here today talking to you through this microphone and helping you in your own journey. So changing our perspective is essential to our own growth. Now, this interview was part of the Going to Beyond the Food project. 
If you want to learn more about the project, you can go to the show note at stephaniedozy.com slash 101. It is currently a free online conference until November 7th, 2017. And you can also access past that date, all the recording, the 21 speaker, their bonuses, video and audio through the upgraded package. So I invite you to go check that out, either directly on the website, goingbeyondthefoodproject.com or through the show note. If this interview, if this podcast, if me sharing my journey has impacted you, helped you, inspired you, I want to know. Drop me a note on Facebook or Instagram or drop a review on iTunes to share how much it helped you. Because right now I'm sitting alone in my office and I have no idea how much of an impact it has on you. So the reviews, the comment on social media are fuel in my tank to keep me going. So I would really appreciate that. Now we have some great show coming up. Show 102 is going to be a coaching show. It's going to be the major takeaway from the Going to Beyond the Food Project. My personal takeaway, what I learned from the speaker and how I am planning to implement that in my life. So I will take you through that in show 102. Thank you very much for having listened and I love you. See you soon.